Hello all, welcome back to Atomic Hobo. Last week we looked at the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad, a little scrap of Russia on the Baltic Sea, with Poland on one side and Lithuania on the other. Yes, it is uh, geographically separate from Russia. Last week's episode explained how and why that came to be, and Kaliningrad is back in the news as Lithuania have, uh, bravely, decided to limit Russia's rail access to the exclave. In order to get goods and supplies to Kaliningrad, Russia needs to cross Belarus and then Lithuanian territory. And Lithuania have begun restricting their access in the name of complying with EU sanctions. Naturally, Russia is now threatening punishment and consequences. For many of us, this is our first introduction to Kaliningrad, or at least a reminder of its weird status. But others have been keenly aware of Kaliningrad and its potential military use since it was first taken by Stalin back in 1945. And now, under Putin, experts are warning that this, uh, apart from Ukraine obviously, could be where World War III breaks out. This could be the point on the map where NATO and Russian forces clash. But first, let's go back to the Cold War. Russia took control of Konigsberg, as it was then called, and set about, after the war, Russifying it. They deported most of the German population, imported a lot of Russian speakers, renamed the place Kaliningrad, they stamped the Russian language everywhere, and rebuilt the bombed city in the Soviet style. The ancient German city of Konigsberg became, uh, with indecent haste, the very Russian Kaliningrad, home to the Soviet Baltic Fleet. In fact, the new Soviet rulers didn't just rebuild the bombed city in their own style, they actually tore down surviving buildings which were typically German in their architecture, seeking to obliterate the past and create a horribly blank canvas. In the newspaper archives, I found the story of Avenir Ovzyanov, who was a young Russian military engineer when he was sent to Kaliningrad in 1957. He helped destroy the city's German soul, said the New York Times. Quote, following orders from local Soviet bosses, Mr. Ovzyanov's class bored hundreds of holes in the ruins of the city's 13th century castle, packed them with dynamite, and began blasting away 700 years of history. The article goes on to tell us of an old Soviet joke whispered amongst Kaliningraders that there was no history between Adam and Potsdam. Of course, it was the 1945 Potsdam Conference that agreed the Russians could take the city, And it was only then that the newly created Kaliningrad's great Soviet future was born. Everything before that? Smash it, bulldoze it, crush it, silence it. So Soviet Kaliningrad, starting out with a new name, new language and a a big smoky hole where its history once was. And it soon became a Soviet closed city, meaning that no foreigners were allowed. Indeed, no Soviet citizens were allowed without a pass and without good reason to be there. 
So as a Westerner, you might say Kaliningrad had no history between Potsdam and Glasnost. At the end of the war, it was reborn, then largely closed off, then reduced to what the New York Times called an isolated region so dominated by the army and navy that it has all the air of a military reservation. So when the Soviet Union collapsed and Kaliningrad uh, peeped out into the light again, well, you could say that some of its citizens decided to, as they say, make hay whilst the sun shone. As Poland and Lithuania threw off communism and flourished, eventually joining the EU, many people in Kaliningrad enjoyed and exploited their region's proximity to the relative wealth and variety, and they also enjoyed their ease of access. And so the black market and smuggling began to thrive in Kaliningrad. For example, in 2002, a carton of Monte Carlo cigarettes cost $3 in Kaliningrad. And that was only a quarter of what it cost in Poland. The New York Times reported that, quote, a cottage industry has sprouted here with cafes and small stores selling little except cigarettes. So there was dismay in Kaliningrad when Poland and Lithuania began their accession to the EU and so official talk began about introducing visas. No more happily scooting across the border. We can't have Russians just jumping in and out of EU territory with rucksacks full of cigarettes. So Kaliningraders were dismayed at having their border access and various money-making schemes restricted. And of course, Putin began making loud complaints. He accused the EU of erecting uh, not an iron curtain, but a blue curtain around Kaliningrad, saying it would be cut off like Berlin was during the Cold War. In 2002, Putin said of the visa plans, What we hear today is worse than the Cold War, because it divides the sovereignty of Russia. We will never agree to the division of Russia's sovereignty. So the EU offered Russians a simplified travel document. You can't have free access to the EU, naturally, but here is an easy, simplified process. Far better than the agonised visa process. Not good enough, the Russians sulked. Instead, they demanded free passage for their citizens through Poland and Lithuania, those countries which (laughs) had the temerity to dare stand between Russia and Kaliningrad. Demanding free passage across another country's territory, that will ring a bell to those who heard last week's episode when Kaliningrad, in its former guise as Konigsberg, was cut off from the rest of Germany by the Polish corridor and Hitler began stamping and demanding free access across Poland. So post-Cold War Kaliningrad had problems with its apparently very sizable black economy. And then came problems with visas and access, and it was also experiencing a health crisis. With the opening of the country to the West after the Cold War, prostitution and drug abuse became a big problem there. And the New York Times said in 1997 that AIDS was spreading in Kaliningrad, quote, like a forest fire. We said last week that The Guardian had described the region as, quote, a hellhole. 
citing its drugs problems, AIDS crisis, and with so much of its economy being a black economy, dependent on smuggling. So as things became a bit grim for Kaliningrad, across the border its close neighbours Poland and the three Baltic states were flourishing. They were throwing off communism and moving to join the EU and NATO. Uh, If I can interrupt myself here, if you need or or want a better understanding of how one of the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, suffered under Soviet rule, I recommend the book Shadows on the Tundra. Now, I don't know how to pronounce the author's name. I will try. But I apologise to any Lithuanian listeners, because I'm sure that I'm getting this wrong. Her name was Dalia Grinke-Vikuti, and the book is Shadows on the Tundra. It's a famous book in Lithuania, and I believe it's taught in Lithuanian schools. I'd never heard of it until a few years ago when the TLS asked me to review it. I absolutely loved it. I think about it now quite a lot. It's a memoir of a Lithuanian girl who was deported from her home by the Soviets and sent to a labour camp, a gulag in the Arctic. The things you will read in this memoir are just incredible. At one point, they are so cold in their barracks that they use snow as a blanket to keep themselves warm. So, so cold that they were using snow to keep warm. Uh, They also had to work in a fish processing plant and were out all day in the freezing Arctic, plunging frozen, raw, bleeding hands into salty, fishy water, hands constantly raw and bleeding, and with nothing to look forward to except sometimes chewing a soggy mouthful of flour. That was their meal sometimes, scooping up a mouthful of flour. So the book is absolutely full of pain and rage, also defiance. It's not uh, self-pitying at all. It's a very defiant, angry book. So I recommend that to you, Shadows on the Tundra, for a better explanation of why Lithuanians might not be exactly warm towards uh, Russia. So back to our topic here. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, it seemed that Kaliningrad enjoyed a brief period of relative freedom, which was quickly blighted by drugs, disease, crime and smuggling. And soon, Putin was complaining because if Poland and Lithuania join the EU, then this so-called blue curtain will descend and it will isolate Kaliningrad. And now, with uh, Sweden and Finland likely to join NATO, Kaliningrad would be surrounded on all sides by countries which are both EU and NATO members. We know the practical difficulties of an isolated Kaliningrad. We're seeing that right now with uh, Russia's land access to it being restricted. But, you know, that's not the end of the world. The place can still be resupplied by sea. No, we might suspect that Putin's or Russia's reason for treasuring Kaliningrad and wanting smooth and unimpeded access to it is due to its military value. Are there... Currently, nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. We know that the region has Iskander missiles, but we can't be sure that they have nuclear warheads with them. Back in April, Russia warned they would indeed stuff the place with both nuclear and hypersonic missiles if Sweden and Finland dared join NATO. The Lithuanian government, being the ones closest to Kaliningrad, they just shrugged. 
Their defence minister said that this statement was, quote, rather strange, because as far as they're concerned, nukes have always been in Kaliningrad. He said, quote, Russia's current threats seem rather strange, in particular, as we know that, leaving the current security situation aside, they keep those weapons 100 kilometres away from the Lithuanian border. He went on to say, nuclear weapons have always been kept in the Kaliningrad region. This uh, latest Russian threat to the area was set out by the former president and now deputy chair of Russia's Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, who said, quote, there can be no more talk of any nuclear free status for the Baltic. The balance must be restored. He went on to say that he hoped Sweden and Finland would not join NATO, otherwise they would have to live with nukes and hypersonic missiles right beside them in Kaliningrad. Well, said Lithuania, we are right beside Kaliningrad, and we think they're already there, and have been there for a long while. This view um, is given credence by some of the experts who track nuclear weapons, and who have seen via satellite imagery, renovation works and excavation at what are believed to be nuclear weapons storage sites in Kaliningrad. Although the same experts do note that the construction work is in itself not proof of the current existence of nukes in Kaliningrad, it could be that the site is being prepared so that it might be ready to receive them in the future. A reminder of how close Lithuania is to Kaliningrad. Lithuanian radio and television, LRT, carried a story recently about how Lithuanians living near the border in Panamune can look across the river and see a huge Z symbol, which has recently been plastered on a warehouse just across the water. And they've also spotted Soviet flags being raised. That's how close this bit of Russia is to Lithuania, and therefore to NATO. You can actually look across the river and see their Z signs glorifying war. But this um, proximity is also paired with distance. Now, I know that sounds contradictory, but the unique situation of Kaliningrad as an exclave means a bit of Russia is directly beside NATO, beside Lithuania, but at the same time, Russia is cut off from it. The Baltic states, Poland and Belarus, all lie in the way. (laughs) Although, forget Belarus, we can assume that, as things stand, Belarus would offer no obstacle to Russia if it wanted to reach Kaliningrad. So then, cutting out Belarus, who stands in the way if Russia decided to just steamroller its way through? Well, taking the most direct land route, the quickest way to Kaliningrad, once you're through Belarus, is to go across a 60-mile strip of land known as the Suvalki Gap. Looking at the map, it almost looks as though... Kaliningrad is stretching eastwards towards Belarus, and Belarus is trying to reach westwards to meet it, but Poland and Lithuania block their path. They meet in the middle, if you like. So the Suvalki Gap is the strip of border where Poland and Lithuania touch, and it is along this line where they meet, which, from a Russian point of view, closes your land access to Kaliningrad.
During the Cold War, Khrushchev described Berlin as the testicles of the West, smirking that he only had to squeeze on Berlin to make the West scream. The Suvalki Gap might become a similar weak point for the West now because it is an area where NATO is vulnerable. If Russia moved across the Suvalki Gap, it would be a quick and relatively easy move and they would connect themselves up with Kaliningrad and its weapons and its naval base. And it would also cut off the Baltic states. They would be surrounded on one side by Russia and Belarus and the Baltic Sea on the other. Quoting from a recent Times article here about the prospect of Russia crossing that gap, quote, It is just a short hop for the Russian military, said Lieutenant General Bernd Schutt, the new German Armed Forces commander responsible for the NATO battle group in Lithuania. Here, the danger that Russia will test NATO's willingness and ability to defend itself is quite big. It can roll out troops in this space fairly quickly and then execute a first strike, for example, by deploying paratroopers. And in the same article, the Russians accused Lithuania by restricting their land access. Lithuania has shot itself not only in the leg, but in the head. So Russia have promised um, consequences, punishment for Lithuania for daring to be brave enough to restrict their land access. But the Times in this same article points out that Russia have lost so much of the power and influence they used to have over Lithuania. Of course, Lithuania was once a Soviet state, and they've thrown that off, obviously. They've also wisely detached themselves, almost completely, from the old Soviet-era shared electricity grid. So Russia can't threaten to pull the plug on their power. Trade beneath the two countries is also now tiny. All of that means, argued the Times, that Putin's leverage over Lithuania has all but vanished. Okay, that's good, right? Yeah, but it also means that if he does intend to bully and blackmail Lithuania, then he doesn't really have any option apart from the military one. Now, of course, we can comfort ourselves by saying the Russians don't exactly seem fit and able to move forces away from Ukraine to start trouble at the Suvalki Gap. And we can say that Putin would not dare cross the gap, as that would mean entering and invading NATO territory. But Putin's argument might be, I'm only moving across a tiny bit of NATO land in order to reach my fellow countrymen who have been so cruelly isolated by bad old Lithuania and the nasty EU sanctions. And as we've discussed before on this podcast, would NATO risk war with Russia for the Savalki Gap? I remember learning at school that the one big reassuring fact about NATO is collective defence. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And I suppose that all boils down, of course, to the military might of America. If we're attacked, America will come to our defence. But would it? This is the agonising thing, the thing we can never, ever know for sure. Would America, or NATO, go to war for something as relatively small as the Suvalki Gap. 
Now, of course, it's not a small matter if you're in Lithuania or Poland, if you live in any of the Baltic states. But would America risk everything for you? I made a half-joking remark once on this podcast asking the same kind of question. um, Would Ronald Reagan have risked New York or Los Angeles or Washington for, for example, Leicester? With apologies to people from Leicester. I was talking about the introduction of cruise missiles to Britain in the early 80s, which caused, of course, huge protests. One of the reasons why the missiles were so unpopular was because they threatened the Soviet Union, of course, and so the Soviet Union could target them and, yes, uh, take them out, as they say, without touching American soil. In theory, the USSR could have struck Greenham Common, where the missiles were based, but said to America, we haven't touched you. We haven't touched a hair in your head. We would not dream of attacking America. Not a single inch of American soil. So would America indeed have gone all out, uh, launched a massive nuclear attack, risking the same in retaliation, just because the Ruskies had nuked Berkshire? No one has hurt New York, uh, Washington, LA, and neither have they touched Paris, Rome, Berlin. All the great global cities are still standing and will remain standing. You've just lost a bit of Berkshire. So we in Britain could not have been sure. And how many of us can ever be sure? Would NATO go all in to defend us if one small, limited geographical area is targeted? So that is why the status of the Savalki Gap is currently in the news. Uh, It is physically vulnerable and could severely test our notion of collective defence. And that is why we have so much talk recently of how NATO should be beefing up its forces in the Baltic states. A few weeks ago I interviewed the Times correspondent Richard Spencer about conditions in the metro in Kharkiv. And he also reported in March from the border between Lithuania and Kaliningrad. I'll end here with a short quote from his article which shows how thin the border between Kaliningrad and Lithuania, between Russia and NATO, is. There are few clues that the Kabarti village cemetery is the front line of a possible new world war. The granite headstones of Lithuanian men and women whose adult lives were ruled by the Soviet Union abut a few feet of grass. There is a fence, and then you're out of NATO and into one of Russia's most militarised territories. There is no razor wire or machine gun posts or checkpoints. If a tank came through, there would be little to stop it.